part of effective altruism. It's not just about giving to charity, but the main push over the last decade has been, okay, using the best evidence we have, using science, what can do the most good? And urging people to commit not all of their resources, but some of their resources to doing as much good as possible. And that's effective altruism in a nutshell. All right, welcome back everybody to the Rome From Home podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gerard, founder of Rome, joined by co-host, today the host, Dr. Terry O'Connor, the founder of Adventure Activist, which is our main sponsor here on the Rome From Home podcast. Incredibly grateful for their support as we move through this season two, where we really explore effective altruism. And that is the mission we have in this season. And so far, I have learned a ton about how to approach the subject of doing good. Terry, you, you study this and yet we're still learning every, every episode, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really what the motivation of, of getting started with this season was some of my personal explorations on this, on this topic. And I think what we've done so far this, this year is really reached out to a number of people who demonstrate, um, really remarkable case studies and kind of personal exploration of, of taking their experiences and what they've done and exploring and adventuring outside and finding a purpose in that. Um, to give back and, and do good in their lives um, in starting their own nonprofits or activism causes, whether it might be as a photographer or a filmer um, or raising money for a campaign or a cause. And, you know, obviously our listeners can refer to the catalog so far, but, um, you know, today what, what I'm excited about is we're actually really going to refine down a little bit on the mechanisms of how this works and why we think there's a unique opportunity, so to speak, in the culture of our friends uh, listening to this podcast and that I think we don't give ourselves enough credit as explorers and adventurers, the opportunities that we have. I mean, certainly we bear witness to some amazing parts of the world. And I think that it, it, it impacts us on a personal level, you know, as far as it makes us think about our lives and, and where we'd like to go. But I think there's a little interesting benefit that's not often talked about and that it can orient us to want to do good for others and for the rest of the planet. And so many of our guests have experienced this to a degree, I, I think. Um, but we really wanted to dive down a little bit more on the mechanisms of how that happens and provide uh, our, our listeners some tools of actually, if you want to do good. <laughs> if you're hoping to be someone who values uh, maybe taking part in saving a life, helping protect the climate, uh, be a good steward to public lands, what is and how can an effective way of doing that be? And, and, and what are the mechanisms that perhaps uh, impede us from getting motivated to give? And what are the tools that motivate us to do these things? And so we're bringing on some, some great guests today, uh, one of which is a, a mutual friend of ours, Rebecca Rush, whose career trajectory really has exemplified this. And um, I've had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Josh Green, and it's, uh, he's a professor at Harvard. Uh, not usual a guest you'd expect on a podcast like this, but um, we've had some really insightful conversations about the psychology and the motivation beyond doing good. And he's got some remarkable work and a remarkable tool he's developed that um, we're going to share all with you, with all of you that I think you'll find really, really interesting. Yeah. If you, in this episode, if you don't remember anything else, remember the giving multiplier, this tool that Terry just 
reference that Dr. Josh Green, he tells us to call him Josh, but (laughs) has developed in the story of how that's been developed, um, which I just think is so helpful as we navigate this idea of how to both be effective uh, and make ourselves feel uh, in a way rewarded um, by the, by the, in the process of, of giving, because we're all usually, and you guys get into some great examples in this episode, we're very motivated to move towards those things that we have an emotional connection to in one way or another. And yet when we look at the data uh, behind, well, anything, sometimes we find that there's a bit of a of a conflict or a rub between the things that we might care about and actually having an effective outcome. So I think that in what Josh has done with this, this tool and the way that you get into it in this episode about how to, to sort of satisfy both of those things and how they have looked at and the, the experiments that they've actually run on a psychological level to, to have better outcomes for the most number of people. And at the same time, keep people fueled, uh, the, the givers, if you will, fueled with the feeling of actually, you know, having an emotional connection. So I, that's a lot of word salad there, but, uh, I think it, it, you'll see the way that Josh describes it in this episode is, is fantastic. And having Rebecca on is always a pleasure. Uh, her journey on the bike, uh, and as an athlete and coming to this place herself is something that we talk about or that you, you all talk about in the episode. And again, that outcome of, of, um, this, this really palpable idea of how doing good actually creates the most joy on a long-term basis. Uh, that's another thing that, that Josh talks about. I think that everyone can feel this and you talk about it too in this episode, Terry, the idea of sort of chasing the next peak or chasing the next level of experience, um, success, achievement, and that it's well known, I think, that there are many people who get to that mountaintop and then they just want another mountaintop. But there's some psychology that will be revealed in this episode on how helping others doesn't fade in the same way that perhaps personal achievement does, which I thought was a great, another great takeaway. Yeah. Yeah, So great, great lessons here. I mean, Josh obviously is a very successful and and celebrated educator at Harvard, won multiple awards. Uh, Don't be intimidated by this. There's some really easy to understand concepts the way he explains it. But I really think the bottom line for our particular audience is that um, we do want to share and convince you that really adventure and exploration is a legitimate vehicle for doing good. And uh, I think you'll find that Dr. Green uh, agrees with us and is really trying to help us all understand how to do good better. All right. Well, and before we get started, just a couple quick words on those that make this possible. We've got two sponsors this season, Rome Academy. That is the Rome Premium Membership that we have launched to inspire, educate, and activate Adventure with Purpose. So if you join as a Rome member, you get access to dozens of classes and lessons on everything from rock climbing and surfing to photography, cooking, mountain biking, gravel biking, fitness, some of the greatest instructors and icons of the outdoor world, including Jimmy Chin, Rebecca Rush, Sasha Julian, Ian Walsh, Mike Horn has a class on achieving your dreams. It's deep, deep content. Uh, And in addition to that, we have 
events and community gatherings online and offline and we're really trying to bring the community together around this idea of adventure with purpose so it's how we keep the lights on uh go check it out at uh, romemedia.com we'd love to have you as a member and also we also are supported by terry's nonprofit adventure activist and i'll let him speak to that yeah, thanks, CJ. So great to join you this year as a representative from my nonprofit, The Adventure Activists, where um, really we're a collective of explorers and adventurers who came together under idea that um, we think the value of adventure and exploration is actually misunderstood. And we have found uh, amongst uh, our board of directors and a larger family of, of explorers and altruists out there that um, so much of the foundation of what we do to give back to the world is based on uh, what we've experienced as adventurers and explorers and really the positive emotion from those experiences have spilled over uh, into forming our own nonprofits or becoming advocates for um, major systemic issues around the world. And our main kind of objective and goal really is to try to use storytelling, this medium uh, of case studies amongst other adventurers that are doing good work in service of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So all of our episodes in this season really are focused on those goals and what uh, our guests are doing in good service of those goals. So we really try to outline solutions and really empower people to understand that what you think might be a little selfish enterprise, you know, your trip up the mountain or along a mountain bike expedition actually, I think, does have value in doing good. Um, and every episode we try to hit on that. So, um, so great to partner with you uh, on this going forward. Um, let's get on to the conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rome from Home. I'm Terry O'Connor, your host. And today I'm joined by guest co-host, my friend, Rebecca Rush. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Dr. T. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you, although virtually, even though you live just a few miles down the road. <laughs> well, for those of you who don't know, Rebecca is an adventure athlete, seven-time world champion, best-selling author, activist, and founder of the Be Good Foundation, and an Emmy Award winner. So, Rebecca, please, maybe for our audience, you introduce yourself just a little bit more about just your activism and work, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, thanks for having me, Terry. I'm really excited to talk today to the good doctor here. Um, but I'm Rebecca Rush. I've been an athlete my whole life, um, an explorer. And really recently, uh, my, my passion has turned towards um, using my sport uh, to give back and to encourage more people to get in the outdoors. You know, the outdoors is a healing place for, for a lot of us. And so I run an events company um, that gets people outside. I you know, document my explorations to, to share the world with other people. But I also run the Be Good Foundation that was founded a few years ago to use the bicycle as a catalyst for healing, empowerment, and evolution, because that's what it has done for me. And so I'll spend my time moving in the outdoors, but also trying to get more people involved there and for their own health and wellness, but also for the health and wellness of our universe. So I'm really excited to be on this podcast because it really fits right in with, with everything I'm passionate about. Well, I'm excited we, we could finally connect for one, Rebecca. It's <laughs> awesome to have you. And our, and our guest today is Dr. Josh Green, a professor of psychology and member of the Center of Brain Science faculty at Harvard. And his focus is on moral judgment. And he's really an expert on effective altruism. That's uh, why I reached out to Josh uh, a little while ago. So he's going to teach us a lot about really how we can do good better. And Josh, I'd love it if you could maybe introduce yourself a little bit more and maybe uh, highlight a little bit more of your work that may be pertinent to share. 
Yeah, great. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. It is just a great pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to talking to both of you today. So the work that I do is kind of at the intersection of philosophy and psychology and, and neuroscience, and I'm interested in understanding how moral thinking works and how we can use an understanding of moral thinking, or as we sometimes call it in the lab, moral cognition, to make the world better and to get us to make better and, and, and wiser choices. We'll be talking about some of the research and projects and how that relates to Rome from home sort of questions and, and goals. Great. Thanks. Well, um, it's really exciting to have you on. It's not not often you get this this collection of people in the same room together, albeit virtual, to chat a little bit about these things. And I think our kind of our navigation point here, our star in this is the reason why Rebecca and I have come together and also CJ at, at Rome for Home. And kind of the theme of this is that we actually kind of believe that there's a there's a unique opportunity or niche for, for those of us who are in this world that we, we would call ourselves perhaps adventurers and explorers, those who are privileged to, to to do the things that we've done over the last few decades. And, and that it actually can be not just a selfish enterprise, but it actually is kind of a, a legitimate vehicle for doing good. And we're doing our best to kind of cultivate this collective moral culture within our audience where, you know, this purpose of doing good is actually the new normal. And so in that, I think it might be best, Josh, I know we've talked just a little bit before, but I thought it might be best for us to both Rebecca and I will share a little bit of stories about kind of our backgrounds and own personal journeys, and then talk a little bit about how that's motivated us to do the best work in philanthropy we can. And then we'll kind of carry on from there. So I often hate having to always reference back to this, but I, I do have, as a, a number of our guests have had a lot of experience in the mountaineering world and exploration adventure and often used perhaps too much as a metaphor, but Everest is a place that I've been a number of times. And I will say that in my background, even before I became a physician, I had the fortune in the late 90s to be invited on an expedition that was actually founded by Brad Washburn at the Boston Museum of Science. And it was a finish of a cartography exploration with National Geographic. And it was an amazing opportunity. It was at a time in my life where I would probably describe myself as really being fully invested in wanting to be an adventurer and explorer. I thought that my future trajectory was going to be as a, as a guide or maybe a climber, or I would hope to do more work for National Geographic. And I found in my early 20s, as it was at the time, that there was something very magical and obviously very exciting about a world and this kind of rarefied experience. And I think there's a lot of positive emotions that come with that, that I think have been well described by you know other psychology um, researchers like me, Semihai, or this kind of concept of flow, like doing these like really amazing, immersive, magical experiences. What I think I discovered on that first expedition in the late 90s to Everest, which is what is something that has been kind of, I think, well documented at this point in the modern era, decades afterwards, is that with these sorts of adventures, there's there's kind of two ways that I think people find value in it. And what made me a little upset and gave me pause about heading down in that trajectory full on is that I found a lot of unfortunate investment in kind of, I guess, I guess, ego-driven kind of objectives. So like, I was at the first time in my life in the early 20s, I had this magical opportunity to go with a scientific expedition and I was on the third pole of the world, right? I was on one of the largest, greatest ice masses in the world on the rooftop of the world. And what I was finding happening around me in the climbing world were a lot of people that were totally invested solely, nothing else to get themselves to the top of this peak, right? And they wanted, it was all about what it said about them. It's all about the story that they could bring home. And there was a lot of investment to make that process happen, but it really disappointed me when I didn't see that people were paying attention 
to really the unique opportunity they had to see this really rare and rarefied space in the planet. And, and on top of that, there were amazing opportunities to connect with culture. And long story short, on that first trip, I, I met a physician who was working at the Sir Edmund Hillary Hospital in a local Sherpa community in Kunde. And he actually had a background as a climber as well. I ended up staying on after the expedition and, and working uh, kind of as a volunteer at this clinic and really found that he had the same trajectory. He too thought he was going to be a professional climber and then navigated into becoming a physician. And uh, I spent some time with him and under his tutelage, it's where I fought, saw my first baby born through my first stitches. And, and lo and behold, I go on this track of becoming a physician. And so what I found, which was interesting about all that is that I think these experiences, these really kind of immersive experiences, whether we're actually going to be in a um, really memorable life experience, that's why we go on these adventures. Like we will never forget them. And certainly they're transformative, but in some ways they can be transformative in realizing the thing that we want for ourselves isn't really the right thing. It's actually the opportunity to give back. Like we are part of something that's much bigger than ourselves. And I'll introduce this other idea of kind of being belittled or the kind of this R overview effect and how it might orient us to wanting to do good for the rest of the planet. Another story, but Rebecca, I, I'm curious and taking from that, and I know you know a bit about my background, but you certainly have, were super successful as an athlete in so many disciplines in your life. And I'm wondering if there was a moment or maybe a, a number of a moments in your life where you started to kind of transition about, or, or just think about, oh my gosh, am I doing this too much for myself? And perhaps maybe I need to start focusing a little bit more about what I've done and my platform to do good for others and when that occurred for you? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think I had that liminal moment much later than you did, you know, well into my 40s. And I have been an expedition ultra endurance athlete my whole life. And there's been glimpses of like teaching girls to bike ride, or obviously we're, we're all, all giving back all the time, but really the, the big transition for me was, was riding, you know, where my ultra endurance career collided with my family and, and six years ago, riding the Ho Chi Minh trail through Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia as an expedition, but also to find the place where my dad's plane was shot down in 1972. And it was, what started as my own personal story um, quickly evolved into, into something much bigger, like you said, connecting with a culture and connecting with a place. But really the realization that a war that ended 50 years ago is still killing people and the bombs are still exploding. There's unexploded ordnance that my dad dropped that is still there affecting daily life of these village people along the trail. And, and it was very clear to me that my career my dad brought me there. My career, you know, came to a culminating point there with him telling, showing me that I could, I could use my career for more than just personal podiums and stuff like that. And I, I came home starting to think about what resource do I have to share? You know, I don't have a lot of money to give to this, but how can I use my platform as an athlete to motivate people to show people? And that's where the Be Good Foundation was launched. You know, you were on that second trip that I went and Be Good are the words that my dad wrote in all of his letters home um, from the Vietnam War. And so that moment six years ago for me was a very transitional stage of using the career I have to, to do more. And that has fueled every, every ride I've done now has a, a philanthropic aspect. And it, you know, I developed these navigational handrails after that trip of like, what am I doing? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. And one of them, you know, one of the rules I live by is that give equals get, and that there is a very, 
positive feeling when we help other people. And so, yeah, that was my liminal moment. And it's been amazing to see actually the doors that have opened for me as an athlete. Once I did turn my focus a little less on me and, and took the horse blinders off as a, you know, I was a racehorse for sure. And taking those blinders off has actually provided a ton of gifts. I'm still competing. I'm still doing expeditions, but with a slightly different focus that is actually super rewarding for me. So, and Terry, you've gotten the chance to go to Laos with me and ride on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. You've seen those bomb craters and, but yeah, that was, that was my moment. Yeah, no, thanks for that. And, and Josh, I, I wanted to offer those stories um, just to place a bit of a context because that really, this is the common theme with so many of the National Geographic photographers and filmmakers and other athletes that we've interviewed so far in the series and the podcast is that there's some sort of transformative moment in these adventures. And then there's kind of a meaning making component that leads to altruism. And, um, and I'll just add one more story as kind of a follow-up to mine. And then I'd love some of your reflections on this, maybe from your insights on maybe some of the emotive emotion kind of context that motivate people to do the work they do. But I didn't really understand what the mechanism was for that. Like, I just felt like there's kind of chance encounters and I just met the right people. And that may be it, right? I mean, we do good things because we're also raised by the right family or maybe like I was originally raised Catholic. So I was guilted into the right things initially, but you know, in a follow-up expedition, when I went a number of years later and I actually, just to cut the story short, actually on the, on the summit uh, of Everest, a number of years later on another expedition on the North side, after a few other expeditions in Tibet. And um, what really struck me at that time, I thought I was going to think about a, a lot about me uh, or my immediate family, but what I found in that moment, and I had a, a, a unique opportunity of being up there by myself for a short period of time, really quite overwhelmed in this concept of, of awe. And it immediately made me think about so many of the people I had seen or maybe treated. I was now a physician at this time in Tibet or in my prior career, people that were suffering in my life, but also people I knew that were suffering in other parts of the world. And um, after that trip, I came home and I started to dig in a little bit more deeper about it. And it was an idea I actually started to work through a bit with Rebecca and, and starting this other nonprofit. And the idea that brought this podcast to fruition is this concept of the overview effect, um, which had been popularized back in the, in the age of space explorers. And I came across a quote, um, I think it's S Edgar Mitchell, or God, I hope it's Edgar Mitchell. It may be Oscar Mitchell, but he was a Apollo 14 astronaut. And there's this famous photo, right, of, of the blue marble, as it's called. It's like the first uh, film photo of the Earth in its entirety from space. And they talk about the psychological state that you acquire uh, in that state as in the benefit of a kind of perspective as an astronaut. And to me, I looked at my experience at the top of Everest as kind of a similar thing. Like, wow, what a, like a really amazing rarefied perspective. And he described that moment uh, and described the overview effect as it's been popularized now is he kind of assumed this instant global consciousness and an orientation for the rest of the world. But on top of that, he also felt an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world and this compulsion to do something about it just by seeing the earth in its entirety in kind of a comprehensible way that seemed manageable. And uh, I think the great follow-up about that, and I, I won't remember this verbatim, but I think he said something like, it makes you want to grab a politician by the neck and drag them in and say, look at that son of a bitch. And so I think what we are doing, and I, I guess I just really want to instill in our audience because so many of the people out there, you know, we do these things for fun. We're passionate about it, but I think we discredit what we are, have the luxury to do as these kind of frivolous things, but there is this shortcut. There's this opportunity to gain a perspective on the bigger picture and actually orient to just do good. And so now 
after all that story talk, and I'd love to bring you in here because I think it sets a good context and we'll talk about other ways to kind of navigate towards good. But do you have any insights or reflections on and kind of some of these, I guess, positive emotive states that, that could be brought up by some of these experiences that actually in your experience are really good, effective ways to get into people to, to charitable causes or philanthropy and altruism? Yeah, well, first, I mean, these are fantastic stories, and you know, you, I, I, I can picture all, you, you on top of the mountain, and and you on the trail, Rebecca, in my mind's eye. My own version of this is is much less photogenic, uh, and maybe sort of more more abstract. But maybe I'll 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 tell a little bit story of how I got into this conversation. So I started out in philosophy, and was really very interested in philosophy just thinking about these questions and trying to, to answer them and argue my, my, my way to, 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 to the answer. And I love being a philosophy student and having that kind of pure intellectual experience, but it can also be kind of solipsistic. And part of what I realized my experience in philosophy was, you know, we make say, well, this seems right and this seems wrong. So any theory that's the correct theory of morality is going to have to say this is wrong, but that's right trying to sort of fit the theory to the data, but the data are your feelings. They're, they're these judgments about what's right or what's wrong. And I realized that we knew we didn't really know enough, I thought, about our own thinking, about moral, moral psychology. And so I had started learning about what we knew about the brain and decision-making in the 90s, which is a lot less than we know now, and made some connections between dilemmas and puzzles in moral philosophy and what might be going on in our brains. And that set me off on this path of becoming a, a psychologist and a neuroscientist. And that was one step closer to the real world, that in trying to answer my own sort of philosophical questions, it also generated this knowledge that was interesting scientifically, but also resonated with a lot of people. Just, you know, I would love to talk to people about trolley dilemmas, if that's familiar and things like that. And that's what I was, was, was working on and trying to understand our moral thinking in terms of that. So that was sort of one step closer out to the world. And then about five or six years ago, I decided, you know, I, I've been working on this philosophical and psychological stuff, but that's ultimately about trying to understand these tensions in our thinking. But none of this is in any sort of straightforward way, really applying my philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. And so a few years ago, I decided, all right, I'm going to start using the tools and knowledge that we have to try to work on projects where I can see a path to doing measurable, observable, concrete good in, in the world. And that that that's led to a couple of different projects, one which I don't think we'll be talking about today, and I can't talk about results anyway, which is on cooperation across political lines. And then the one which we are going to talk about is this work on effective altruism and giving multiplier and trying to understand people's moral motivations and figure out how to channel those motivations so that you can take what people are most passionate about most passionate about and channel it in a way that doesn't just give personal gratification but that also spreads that gratification not just some but as much as possible and so that's in this abstract way without mm -hmm. any beautiful pictures from the mountaintop that's how i see this you know tributary flowing into that river yeah let me follow up maybe with another story about this. Um, I guess, again, it's a bit of a personal story about maybe how I had misnavigated this, this idea of personal gratification. I think um, it's come up in some other interviews you've done, Josh, 
this kind of concept of the good feels of doing good. Like you, you want to feel, I guess maybe the other terminology is often used is like it's salient. Like it kind of makes sense to you, like what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I go back to my original story. It's a bit of the genesis of why I decided to, to motivate myself to become a physician and then eventually, a, you know, an emergency physician. But I had another luminal moment to steal terminology and vocabulary from Rebecca, where I had the fortune of going with a friend and colleague who also comes from a background of doing adventures and, and doing expeditions in National Geographic, but purely as a physician. And we were doing work in the slums of, of Calcutta. And this was uh, about five years ago. And um, I have now been a practicing emergency physician for, I, I think, almost 10 years at this time obviously made a large investment. And clearly my sense of doing good was, okay, I've made this, this huge personal investment and the good I can do is relieving suffering and taking care of patients. And so now I'm also going to go all the way across the world and try to integrate with this nonprofit that's locally based. And really we're trying to reach out to the untouchable, the delete cast in these slums in Calcutta, provide care we can and integrate them into a healthcare system that they otherwise would have. There are some social constructs that would, that makes that difficult for them without a, uh, a liaison or chaperone being a, a Western physician in, in this construct. And so with that, we went to a village uh, near the airport and we had heard that there was a young man who was suffering from a severe case of dengue. And approaching that village, uh, we were asking, I came across this young girl and uh, say, hey, I'm sorry. She looked quite a frightened. I said, I'm sorry, we're, we're coming into your home here, but we're looking for this, this man. And she just broke, broke out in tears and started to say over and over again, uh, Amara Barina, Amara Barina. I'm sorry for those out there who speak Bengal because I probably butchered that, but that, that basically means I, this is not my home. This is not my home. And as the story evolved, it turns out that she and her whole village, literally her whole farming village was displaced from the Sundarbans region of Bangladesh because of rising sea level. Okay. And um, so they are basically climate refugees, displaced, now untouchables because of their cultural affiliations, their ethnicity in Calcutta. And it really struck me that in my life up to that point, I have kind of made myself feel good that I had decided to be a doctor and that that was like the most effective thing to do. But then what struck me is that in that I've continued to travel all throughout the world. And sometimes I travel across the world to do good work, but I may actually be contributing to a much larger systemic problem that is global climate change and the health impacts of that and the scale of that that I had been ignoring and may have been able to address either financially or in advocacy in a better fashion. And so what that highlighted for me is, wow, okay. Um, I had rationalized in my mind the feel goods and I kind of went all in. And this is not to discredit the hard work of all the physicians and nurses out there, but this is just my personal experience and my personal calculus. And it's really influenced where I've taken my career trajectory as we speak now. But I was discrediting the value of looking at how to do the best good. And that is this arena of effective altruism and, and the colleagues that you've since interfaced with going forward. And I think a lot of us sometimes have stories that we realize we can kind of make that step. And, and to some people that are listening, this might be a, a totally new terrain and, and category to consider. But I think that it's not wrong to be motivated to do good because it makes you feel good, but you can do good better. And there are some arguments out there of things that we can do that we may not have the feel goods. We may not have the emotional attachment to. And so I guess from, from that, I wanted to see and kind of have you put on your educator hat. There's, there's two ways to, I think, maybe go from this. And then Rebecca, maybe you might have some reflections after Josh goes into this a little bit more, but there's some seminal pieces out there that draw the argument of how a little bit 
that we can do can make a big difference in the rest of the world. And this is a lot of the nonprofits that are listed on your website at Giving Multiplier and partnerships you have. And some of the initial arguments are brought up by thought experiments, which I'm sure you introduce many times. And I'm talking, speaking specifically to um, Peter Singer's work and then uh, Will McCaskill's work and kind of his kind of twist on that. But can you maybe in the next, uh, if you can, I'm sorry to put you on the spot if it's too much, but I'm wondering if in the next five or 10 minutes, you can try to, for our audience, put a pitch out there like the rational argument of why we may want to make investment sacrifice donate to causes that we don't have this feel goods emotional attachment to initially. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to do that. And um, yeah, so let's start with with Peter Singer's famous argument, right? So Peter Singer in the early 70s is a philosopher um, who is also credited with being the philosophical father of the animal rights movement with his book, Animal Liberation. But this is his work more, and you might say, on, on human altruism liberation. Um, he, he said, you know, imagine you're walking along and you're walking by this pond and you see there's a child who's drowning in the pond. And you know, you know, you could jump in and save the child, but you're wearing your fancy Italian loafers or whatever it is, your suit. And if you do that, it's gonna ruin your clothes. You know, it'll, it'll cost you some money to replace it. I once put out a figure there and a well-dressed uh, friend of mine told me, no, that's way too low. Uh, <laughs> I, won't, I won't venture there. Uh, I didn't know what an Armani suit cost, but the question is, do you have, is it okay to just say, yeah, I'd like to save that kid, but I'm wearing my nice clothes, so no. And everyone says, of course you have to dive in and save the kid if you really think you can, right? And then Peter Singer says, well, there are kids on the other side of the world who are drowning in poverty, who are badly in need of food and medicine that could save their lives and, and other things that we in the West, developed West consider necessities like education, et cetera. And for the price of, of a nice suit, you could very possibly save someone's life or increase the odds that you'd save one of these child, uh, child's lives. Do you have an obligation to do that? His conclusion is, yes, you do. And it's counterintuitive. You don't feel like helping someone, some stranger on the other side of the world is just as much of an obligation as diving in to save that kid who's right in front of you, but there's no good rational justification for it. And you can have a long sort of philosophical debate about it. You can sort of try to use a little philosophical jujitsu casuistry to get out of this. And you can say, well, in the case of the child, you're the only one there, but there are lots of people who could help the children on the other side of the world. And then Peter Singer says, well, what if there were a bunch of people in their nice suits standing around this pond? Now, is it okay to let the child drown? And you say, okay, no, that doesn't really quite work. And you, know, you can play this game for, for, for a while, but it's hard to avoid the conclusion that yes, you should jump in the pond and yes, you should be doing at least more to save people whose lives you can dramatically improve with even your modest resources as a middle-class person in the developed world. So that's part one, you have an obligation to do something, right? And that that's kind of, that was sort of the core argument up until the turn of the 21st century. And then the effective altruism movement came along and said, okay, but if you're going to do something, shouldn't you try to do this as well as possible, right? And you know, the, the philosopher Derek Parfit made this argument where like, if, if you could save someone from losing his arm, right? Or you could save that person from losing both of his arms. And it was just as easy to do both, even if it would be okay for you to not, let's say you'd have to risk your life to save them, right? You'd say, well, maybe it's okay if you don't wanna risk your life to save someone's arm. But if you're gonna do it, it would be perverse to only save one arm instead of saving both. If you're going to do good, do it as well as possible, right? Okay. Or to take Will McCaskill's example, if you're rushing into a burning house and you only had time to get to two rooms or one room, 
and one room has one child in it and the other room has five children in it and you could go scoop up the five kids and get them out of the burning house or just the one, it would be similarly perverse to only save the one child, right? So now we kind of have this argument, even though it doesn't feel like you have to in, in the faraway child case, that may just be our kind of emotional button speaking and not something that really makes rational sense. And furthermore, if you're going to help, do as much good as possible. Now, taking this out of the realm of thought experiments to sort of establish the philosophical point, about 10 years ago, people started getting serious about saying, well, how do you do the most good? Not how do you solve this problem most efficiently or this problem most efficiently, but when you look across causes, which causes allow you to do the most good, saving the most lives or improving people's quality of life the most for as many years as possible. And this is asking similar questions that you have to actually ask in, in medicine, right? That when, when you have limited resources in healthcare, you say, well, if this surgery costs $20,000, should we reimburse for that when the money could go to preventative medicine that would prevent 20 people from needing the surgery in the first place, right? And you can't avoid those questions in medicine, especially at the level of public health. And you might say in morality, you have to ask those same questions as well. So a couple of hedge fund guys who are interested in learning, you know, who, who, are, who are practiced in the art of evaluating investments. I don't care what the investment is. How do I get the greatest financial return? They had some money they wanted to give away and they were like, okay, well, how do you do the most good with your money? That's, you know, that's the natural question for, a, for an ACE analyst to ask. And they realized that no one was really generating those answers. So they started doing this research to try to figure out how do you get the most good bang for your buck? And then that research went from being a hobby to a part-time job to a full-time job. And they started this organization called GiveWell, which does incredible work and evaluates every charity that has a shot at being super impactful to see just how impactful it is. And they've directed millions of dollars over the years, hundreds of millions, I think at this point, certainly tens of millions to the most effective causes. And they're, as you pointed out, not necessarily the ones that are going to be as immediately personally meaningful as some things that might be because of your personal history or because of it's close to you in terms of your community or because someone you know died of this disease or something like that, but they do an enormous amount of good. And you know, a lot of people think that the difference in the effectiveness of a charity, of a cause, they're going to be like differences in height, right? So like a really tall person might be 50% taller than someone who's really small, right? But it's not like that with charities. It's like the differences in sizes of, of towns and cities where, you know, New York is not just 50% bigger than, a, than, than your typical town, right? So the, the sort of superstar charities out there do incredible things like, uh, you know, evidence actions to worm the world can provide life-changing deworming treatments. This is getting rid of parasitic worms that are really debilitating and prevent children from going to school and ultimately learning, earning a good living. You can do that for less than a dollar. Um, and distributing malaria nets, you know, you can distribute a thousand malaria nets for something like $5,000. And that can prevent a young child from getting malaria and dying, right? So the range of these things kind of boggles the mind and it doesn't fit with our intuitions. And so part of effective altruism, it's not just about giving to charity, but the main push over the last decade has been, okay, using the best evidence we have, using science, what can do the most good and urging people to commit not all of their resources, but some of their resources to doing as much good as possible. And that's effective altruism in a nutshell.
That's great, uh, Josh. Thanks. That's a great overview. And I want to I'm gonna spin back to Rebecca here for a little reflection because I think we've we've talked about. Uh, let's just kind of review the chapters here. So there's often a personal story that leads to an investment to want to do something good, and in a lot of ways, that is the easiest way to go over this inertia and or create the motivation. We now have this burgeoning field of effective altruism where we have magnitudes of. It feels like butchering to say this, but it's the only other way to say it of doing better good <laughs> by the evidence we now have with what some of these great organizations that you've collaborated with and give well, and also in your platform that demonstrate it. If you're going to donate a buck, this is the best way to donate it. If you care about the pain and suffering in the world, or if you care about environmental stewardship, climate change, whatnot. But what we have is a big gap and a motivational challenge here. Yeah. And, and that is I'm more inclined to want to help the neighbor I know down the street or be of service to something that's emotionally important to me. And there's nothing wrong with that. Then when you get in the game, and this is what I think is, and I'm Rebecca, I'm curious if you have any reflections on this, but this is kind of a question and a statement to you. When you get in the game of you're making a priority of your life, your life's purpose is trying to do good for the rest of humanity or the planet and the time you have, you start to become overwhelmed by the need. <laughs> and yeah, I can give up my Armani suit <laughs> To, to give, but there's too much to give to. And so how do I decide? And if I can't decide because I don't have an emotional connection to, how do I take that next step? And, and Rebecca, with your creating your nonprofit, I mean, you, you had this uh, really effective and emotionally powerful story with your father and the film with Blood Road, which obviously got the accolades it did for good reason, because it is a very uh, motivating story. But as you evolved in your world with altruism philanthropy, I'm sure you started to think about other partnerships and with your last you know, fundraiser with the Giddy Up Challenge that you just did, you obviously brought other organizations in that you know overlap with some values you have. But I'm sure there's moments where you feel, I don't know, I want to put words in your mouth, but here's some examples like underqualified, overwhelmed, can't make enough of a difference, don't know why you would be in that business. Can, can you maybe give me some reflections of maybe maybe just kind of what you've dealt with in your own kind of calculus the last couple of years with philanthropy? Yeah, and what is what is so cool about what Josh is doing with the neuroscience is is he he's proving why we feel that way, or, you know, identifying why we feel that way and giving us a guide, a path, basically to make the right choices. And I mean, I think it's so fascinating right now. With neuroscience is changing everything from how we make decisions for philanthropic decisions to you know. Are we going to stretch that day or, or, you know, the choices that we make in our life are based on what's going on in our brain. And I think it's really cool what you've done with a giving multiplier, Josh, is I mean, it's touching on everything that Terry says. And to take a, an example of what we've already been talking about, the big marble view of like all the help that is needed in the world. And you look at that and it's like, I, I what can I I can't do anything. It's too much. But then you take the Ho Chi Minh Trail and I sit with a villager, you know, who is missing a limb because of unexploded ordnance. And the child is five years old, wasn't alive during the Vietnam War and has never known a life without bombs in his backyard. And so you take then that hyper micro view and what the giving multiplier does, it's so cool, is that you've got to personally be invested. And you've proven that with science. You've got to feel something first, but then the next step is, oh, okay, I can have my charity, Be Good Foundation can be involved, and then I can partner with the giving multiplier and be connected with another source that you're talking about of mosquito nets or malaria nets somewhere in the world with people that I'll never meet. And suddenly 
I'm starting to feel like, oh, I'm not having a big impact, you know, with my foundation, um, even though I am, I know if, if I impact one person, you see, you see it, but there can be more. And I really love that about the giving multiplier because of one, it's the science of what motivates us, but you bring in your personal story and then you connect to another story. And I think people need that direct feedback of, I made a difference, but then also like, I don't know what else to do. And Terry, Terry knows I started a foundation with no experience other than this high moral feeling that my dad asked me to do something and I should do it. And so I'm learning from people like you of like, okay, I threw this against the wall. I have a foundation, but I'm starting to learn now through that path of all these other one, why I was motivated to do it, but how we can do more. And so what you're doing is so fascinating to me. And it's so amazing because then you suddenly don't feel like this one little person who I've never, I'll never buy an Armani suit. I don't have a lot of money to give, but I have a little and I have time and I have my influence. And I think that's an important thing for people to think about is if you have the desire, the resources are there. And I know Corey's talked about it. You know, he focuses in mental health because that's an area that is personal to him. So yeah, there has to be personal, but then it goes beyond the point that gets you in the door, but then it's like, ah, I want to do more. I want to do more, but I don't have a lot, but I want everything to go a long way. And yeah, I want to save both guys arms if I can, um, in, instead of one. And I mean, I think it's so cool that you've created this platform, but that there is scientific reason behind how we make our decisions. And I think we're in a really exciting time in our world where people are looking at the brain and they're looking at why we do what we do. And maybe you can explain why Terry and I go do these ultra endurance, crazy things um, a little bit better. I'm trying to understand that too, but mostly I want to say thank you. And for the people out there, find something personal um, that brings you in the door, whether it's sport or climate or whatever, but then, then the door is flung open um, by people like the work that you're doing, Josh. Oh, well, gosh, well, thank you so much. And, and I, and I'm, I'm getting that warm glow, just, you know, hearing and feeling like it's, it's so wonderful that this is, has resonated with you. Maybe I should put back my expository hat on and explain a little bit about what giving multiplier is and how it connects to these ideas. Right. So that's exactly what I was going to segue to Josh. So run with it. Yeah. So, so Terry mentioned, you know, the gap between, you know, doing as much good as you can and that feeling about you know what really motivates you and what your passion is and what's most personally meaningful to you right and this is something that i've struggled with even having signed on intellectually to you know do as much good as possible that's not i don't live up to that ideal in my life i care about my kids i spend money on things that you know could be used to buy more malaria nets and how do you make sense of that right and for a few years early in this process when i you know when i got to phase 3 and i was like okay i want to use my research to try to do something good the first thing i did was kind of in a sense the obvious thing which was try to give people the philosophical arguments that convinced me and that I just laid out for you with drowning kids and saving two arms instead of one arm and all of that. And what we found is it really didn't work. We tested it on people and there are a small number of people who respond to this. And there are so few of them that it's not statistically noticeable in a normal research sample, right? And then in came my my collaborator, Lucius Caviola, a wonderful researcher and my partner in all of this and really the lead on giving multiplier. And we were talking about this and we hit on this like, idiotically simple idea, which is, you know, we've been trying to say to people, don't do this, do that. Instead of doing the thing you really feel personally connected to, you should do this thing that will do more good. 
And we just had this dead simple idea of saying, what if we just ask people to do both, right? And maybe that would be enough of an appealing proposition that it would be better than trying to convince people to abandon what really makes them feel good in favor of what makes a kind of abstract rational sense. Mm -hmm. So we ran some studies where we just said, hey, you know, in one condition, we, we asked people, hey, you know, here's some money that you can give away. Here's some arguments, you know, do you want to give it, pick your favorite charity where do you want to give the money to your favorite charity or to this like deworming charity that we identify, right? And almost everybody says, yeah, I'll go with my favorite charity. But if you say, well, you could give everything here or everything there, or you could split 50-50. People love splitting 50-50. They, they get their positive feeling from of supporting the thing that they feel personally connected to. And they also genuinely like the idea of, of increasing their impact. So we did a whole bunch of studies to try to understand the psychology behind this. But it's really, you know, we, we it's 10 different experiments, but it all comes down to the idea that when you combine something that makes sense to the emotional side of you with something that makes sense to the rational side of you, it's a winning combination. And that's actually was a theme from my older philosophical work, but I and psychological work, but I hadn't quite made that connection here. So after doing a bunch of these experiments, oh, and then the other thing we found is that plenty of people, that, that people were even more willing to do these kinds of split donations if we sweetened it by adding a little money on top to both of the charities. And it was really important that we wanted to add to both because we didn't want to be saying to people, well, we'll incentivize you to do what we think is important or what we think is valuable. We're saying, look, we affirm your passion, but we, and we're also incentivizing and affirming this other thing that has really big impact. So we found that people really liked it even more, not surprising when you incentivized it. And then the kicker was we found that a lot of ordinary people in our samples and these studies were willing to put some money into the, into the pot for incentivizing others to sort of pay it forward. Right. Okay. And so we said, oh my gosh, this seems to work really well. If this really works, this could really be something that would happen in the real world and not just in our little experiments. <laughs> so so we, we stepped out into the real world, uh, at least the electronic version of it, and we built Giving Multiplier. And Giving Multiplier is a new donation platform, which we launched late last year, which offers people the opportunity to do what we developed in these studies. So basically the way it works is you go to givingmultiplier.org and the first thing you do is pick your favorite charity, whatever your passion is. It's maybe a charity that gets kids out into the mountains from the city or something like that, whatever it is, local school, local hospital. And you say, okay, that's my favorite one. And then we have a, a set at this point, it's nine charities. And a lot of our recommendations come from GiveWell, where I mentioned before, where they do research to figure out how, where in the world can a dollar save the most lives and improve people's health and well-being the most. And so a lot of our charities come from there. Um, and then we also have uh, charities recommended by animal charity evaluators, which are focused on agricultural animal well-being, because you can do an enormous amount of good by improving conditions for farm animals, or even avoiding the need to have farm animals with things like plant-based meat and cultured meat. And so there's animal stuff. And then there are things that are more long-term and speculative, where we can't do a controlled trial for stopping the next pandemic, for example, but a good clear analysis suggests that this is a really good investment. So those are the kinds of charities that, that, that we have, but they're all based on expert recommendations from serious research that comes from outside of us. And, and, and most of them are coming from randomly controlled trials, gold standard behavioral science, right? Um, to see what does the most good. So you pick 
your favorite charity. You pick one from the list and one that appeals to you and you decide how do you want to split your donation and you use this little slider and the, and the way we set it up, you know, depending on how much you give to the effective charity, you get money added on top and then you make your donation. So actually, if I can mention the adventure activist code. So, so uh, mm -hmm. right now the default is um, you get up to 30% added on top of your donation. That's if you give all to an effective charity. Normally it's 15%, for example, if you split 50-50, so kind of a tip on both of those. But we are doing a special promotion for this podcast and for Adventure Activist, where you get a 25% add-on for a 50-50 donation, and it can go up to 50%, depending on how you do the, the slider. And so that's all one word adventure activist. And if you if you put that into the little box there um, or follow the special link, which you may be able to find now, then you get an even bigger add-on. But, but uh, since we launched this in the fall, we've been bowled over by how many people have taken us up on this offer. So uh, since the fall, we fundraised over half a million dollars. And this has been an, enough to, to fund thousands of deworming treatments, thousands of, of malaria nets, and those are just some of the more measurable things. And we hope this is just the beginning. But the, the main point here is that this allows you to tie your personal passion and what you feel most connected to, to things that are doing as much good as possible based on the best available science and, and getting rewarded on top of that for doing both of those things. And so, you know, I just to kind of make explicit, I think the connection of, you know, why would you be talking about this charity on this adventure activism show? Yeah. It's all about, as you said, tying your passion and the stuff that really gets you out of bed in the morning and then using that as a lever to look beyond just what makes you feel good and do as much good as possible with your resources as well. Yeah, that's, that's so cool, Josh. And and I guess since you've you're now externally val validating this in the field, so to speak, and actually seeing it play out. I mean, are you? Um, this is a really novel tool, and it's it's great to see it. And I and I hope, you know, myself, I have some other projects I wanted to talk to you about engaging with uh, outside of this particular realm. But I think certainly within this audience, we would love to have people help contribute to, to the program and the idea. But where do you see the next step might be? Are there any other lever levers from your insights kind of on motivation and with, with altruism that you, I guess, shortcuts that you may be able to apply with what you've learned that you think might be beneficial? I, I guess yeah. there's a number of things that I see working in the nonprofit world that may be beneficial too, like um, this idea of sustaining members. Like you might even have someone who does a sustaining donation just to giving multiplier or to whatever they want, but through the giving multiplier platform, or if there's any other shortcuts you envision that might be helpful for yeah. helping the world do good going forward. Yeah. So, I mean, on that important specific point, we are working, you know, this is all new and we're, we're operating on it with a very small group and some volunteer labor, but we're working on implementing a recurring donation. We now have a refer a friend option. So this is new, like as of a week or two ago. Oh, cool. Now, when you give a donation, you can not only make the donation, but you can enter an email for friends who are like-minded and who might be interested. And then they become part of your chain. You can start this chain reaction and other people can have that same experience of supporting something they really love and something that they really think makes a lot of sense and getting the booster on top of those two things. I'd say, you know, in terms of more broadly, I think there is a broader philosophy behind this, which is that you need to meet people where they are, right? That if you want to change people's minds, if you want to change people's hearts, you need to say, well, what, what, are they, what do they want? What do they care about? 
And how can, how can, if, if I have some goal, how can I integrate my goal, whether it's, you know, my personal goal, like as a business person, or in the case of giving multiplier goal of doing as much good as possible by supporting these blockbuster, super effective charities, but whatever it is, you'd say, well, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning and how can we, I integrate what you're doing with that. Right. And I think you can see this in other aspects of philanthropy, right. Is that, you know, you could look at, let's say, at choosing a career and 80,000 hours is, is a wonderful organization, an effective altruist organization that helps people find careers. And in a sense, they take a giving multiplier kind of approach. They don't just say, well, here's the career that does as much good as possible. Do that. Instead, it says, well, what are you good at? What do you love? What gets you up in the morning? And then you also think about, but what could really allow you to do good that wouldn't otherwise get done, right? And help you find a path that speaks to your heart and motivates you, but that also isn't just about your own individual rewards. It's about expanding the circle. And with, with some of our, I think you see the same strategy with some of our charities, right? That when you think of a charity that's designed to help animals, you don't think about things like plant-based meat, right? You think about volunteering in an animal shelter or something like that, right? But what plant-based meat does, like impossible meats, impossible burgers, is for people who are kind of on the fence about this, where they, they sort of get the argument, but I really do love my burgers, right? If you can make a burger that tastes as good or 85% as good as your favorite ground beef burger, then now you've made a real difference and you've made, and possibly made a real difference on a huge scale. But it's, it's finding a way to give people what they want in a way that promotes animal welfare. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way to help to reduce animal suffering but it's not an obvious strategy, right? It's not what you first think of when you think of reducing animal suffering, but it's very much starting with this idea of, well, the people who I would hope to persuade, what do they want? And what can I offer them that would bring them closer to the world that I'm trying to create? I, uh, gosh, I do a couple of thoughts. Actually, Rebecca, did you have any reflection there? I thought you might've had something to say. I just, I mean, I love that it's all based on psychology. You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. we, we're not going to change people's brain behavior, you know, because our brains operate in a certain way. We make choices in a certain way. And so meeting somebody where they are or providing them tools that, that are actually, they're motivated to, to use. Like, I mean, it sounds so simple. Like you said, it's like, this is all really obvious, but it's based in the science of psychology and why we make choices that we make. I mean, Part of me meeting people where they are, I meet them in the outdoors. And then that takes, we go on a bike ride basically or go outside. And then that takes them to, to the next place of, you know, protecting the outdoors or, you know, taking care of their own personal health and wellness first, which yeah. everybody wants to do. We need to, you know, our mental health, our physical health for a lot of people begins with movement and outside. Yeah but then they take care of themselves, then they want to move on to the next level. And it, yeah. it sounds a little bit like how you designed the giving multipliers. First, you, you do the thing you want to do, and yeah. then you're brought into a bigger concept. And yeah. I just love that it's all based in psychology, and that's why it's working. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of what you said about meeting people outdoors. It reminds me of a story from my, my, my younger brother is a child psychiatrist. And I remember him telling me this story. When he was in training, he had this patient, this kid, who's just really hard to get through to and just didn't want to talk about anything. And my brother was just like, you like basketball? And he's like, yeah, let's go play ball. And he just went and played ball with him. And for a while they were just playing basketball. But after playing a lot of ball together, first they'd chat a little bit while they were playing. And then finally that 
establish that connection and able to open up and really make progress in what was going on in this kid's life, right? And it just made, you know, when you, when you said like little meeting people where they are and in your case outdoors, it just re reminded me of my brother, the psychiatrist taking this mm -hmm. sort of non-obvious move and getting out of his chair to find a way to connect. And yeah. these moves aren't obvious, but they're becoming more and more obvious with neuroscience and the work that you're doing is we are seeing there's a, a different path. If we follow what our brain wants to do and tells us to do, yeah. that it is a path that is becoming more obvious. And I think that's a really exciting development in with the work that you're doing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And what I'm kind of hearing here is I've, in my mind, I'm trying to summarize everything I've learned and digest a little bit. I, I almost see there's, you know, we want the consequence to be doing the best good possible. And as obviously from your background, from the research that you've done previously, we, you, you talk about these disparate mechanisms that are not exactly the same. But they lead us to where we want to go with this particular thing you're talking about. I, I see that, you know, it's, it's okay to utilize the tools that uh, bring in the hook. You know, they get someone interested or get them emotionally motivated to want to do something right. And that may be joining them on a run, playing basketball with them, uh, going on a bike ride. Uh, and sometimes it's just telling a compelling story that relates to that person yeah. where I think we are now. Uh, and what's so exciting about the work you're doing and, and just exciting about just for me personally, as I think about the next stages of my career and my life is that it now seems not only we've been introduced to a hook, we've been introduced to a lever. And that lever is like, it's, it's amplifying the magnitude of our intent, but we would never be, <laughs> we would never be motivated to pull that lever if we still, if we didn't have the hook that kind of drawed us into that tool first. Yeah. And um, for us that are trying to motivate, like someone like Rebecca, who's using her platform and trying to motivate other people, not only to donate to what she's passionate about, or also as she wants to share this message to people that are in our position. And if I'm talking to other physicians, or, and is there any other bits or pearls of advice you think you could share with us? informed from what you've learned about, you know, motivation and, and behavior uh, for good, just in, in conversations going forward and our work going forward that you haven't addressed so far? Um, I'm not sure if I have a new one, but I, I want to really highlight something you said, because there's mm -hmm. a phrase there that I think perfectly captures everything we're talking about here from, you know, it, it being an adventurer and doing as much good as possible. And that's a phrase, personal best. That to me really, really ties it all together and addresses this other question of how do you stop from being overwhelmed, right? Yeah. When there's so much that you can do and no matter what you do, it's always, it's always going to be a fraction of what can be done, right? And, you know, we get pretty good at applying this in certain domains of our lives. But when you're confronted with this new opportunity to, oh my gosh, I could, I could change someone's life with a, with a, deworming treatment that costs less than a dollar, how can I ever spend a dollar on anything else, right? <laughs> that you, you have to also be kind to yourself. And, you know, uh, something that Will McCaskill has pointed out is that the best frame of mind is not feeling terrible about yourself because you haven't done more. The best frame of mind is the frame of mind that encourages you to do better, right? It's always just that all that matters is whether or not you take the next step, right? And, and, and so when I, when people ask me about this and say, well, how, how do you not just get overwhelmed and just feel guilty? You know, there's that famous scene in, in Schindler's list when Schindler, you know, at, at the end sort of breaks down and he says, this ring, this ring could have, you know, been sold and saved more people. And you, as the audience, you don't feel that you say, look at all the good that you've done. You've did, you, you know, and there's always going to be an, a, you know, an, another life to be saved, but that's not how you should feel. We need to be as kind to ourselves as we willing to are, are willing to be to Schindler in that moment and say, there's always going to be more. And that's not the point. 
The point is, are you being honest with yourself? Are you living in a way that makes the best use of your, your talents and your passions and channels it in a way that keeps you going, and, but then also allows some of that energy to, to go off in a direction that does as much good as possible once you know how to do that. And so if I you know, wanted to leave people with a thought, I would say absolutely personal best is a great way to, to encapsulate it. Yeah. And that makes me think of a great point Rebecca brought up too. And this is a little bit of a, a twofer in that, you know, this audience enjoys going out for bike rides and exploring and going on adventures. And I think what we laid out is an argument that you, you kind of get a two for one in that. I mean, you take Absolutely. care, you fill your cup, uh, you feel you're in this positive emotion state that you may yeah. be more likely to want to get to give yeah. instead of just feeling like you're inundated in email and in a foxhole getting shot out every day, Yeah, your cup is full. And in fact, it may actually be filling over at which yes. point now, where do you do with that? Well, that's what we've been doing on this podcast. We've been talking yeah. to people what they do when that cup fills over, when they have a calling. And I think we now talked a little bit about <laughs> obviously other levers we can pull to, yeah. to do even better good. Yeah. Let me add system. one psychology yeah. point to this, if that's all right. Yeah. There's you know, good research on this indicating that you know w- when you achieve just for yourself, you're on a kind of treadmill. That like, as soon as you you climb the next mountain, you're, there's just all you do is see the next peak and say, oh, I should be up higher, right? Whether it's making money or more status in your, in your, in your, in your world or whatever it is, those joys fade very quickly, right? But when you do things that help other people, those things don't fade as much. And it's an interesting question about our psychology. Why should that be? I would guess that it makes sense from a kind of evolutionary point of view that the resources that one could have for oneself in one's natural environment are pretty minimal. You know, there are only so many calories that you can healthily consume, right? You can only be disease-free so much, right? But there's no limit to how many, or not no limit, but there's a very high limit to how many friends you can have and how committed those friends can be to you. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that once your belly is full with calories, you don't need any more calories, Right. But you're, 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 I'm just gonna sound a little corny, but like it takes, there's, there's, there's much less of a limit on how heart, full your heart can be, right? When it comes to making connections with other people. And so what you find over and over again when you study happiness or study achievement is that narrow, personally oriented, status oriented, money oriented achievements, those just disappear like the last meal, right? But the social resources that you build by contributing to other people's lives, those benefits end up coming back to you, not necessarily because you're saying, well, I want to feel good, so I'm going to do this for other people. Whether you're, whether you're trying to feel good or not, that's just how it works. Well, uh, Rebecca, any final thoughts here as we close up conversation here with Josh? I feel like we could keep on going, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I just want to keep respect for the time. But so much good stuff. I, I mean, I just, yeah, I love the psychology behind all of it, you know, and your personal best and filling your heart as well as your belly. Like there's so many great nuggets here. And I, I feel like our next meeting needs to be on a bike ride or a hike somewhere <laughs> yeah. with you, Josh. So that well, we if you're ever in Boston, I actually bike. Um, that's <laughs> like biking and running are my main forms of exercise. I'm not anywhere near your level. Uh, so, you know, but I, I could try to keep up with you for, for a mile or two. Uh, <laughs> well, Josh, it's been so awesome to have your time and I'm um, really so amazing to have the benefit of your experience and your acumen as an educator too, to explain some of these concepts. I think it was really helpful for our audience. And um, 
I'm, I'm really looking forward to following up with you again at a later time to, to talk about some other projects. I think we could, we could collaborate on as well. You're, you're really doing some groundbreaking work and I really appreciate uh, you spearheading being at the, the tip of this spear um, and doing good going forward for, for us and the planet really. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great hearing your stories. I'm delighted yeah. to have a chance to, to let people know about giving multiplier and um, yeah, I look, look forward to reconnecting next chance. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. All right, well, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. Well, cool. What a what a cool conversation, and and really interested in, uh, to really have access to such a great educator and really innovator in, in this in this place, um, and really nice to have some of Rebecca's reflections and her own personal experience as well. Uh, CJ, I know you were excited to hear this one come in, but what, what are the interesting take-homes for you um, from this conversation you think going forward? Yeah, gosh, uh, Josh's description of his work, there's so many things, but the thing that really did stick with me was the basic psychology that they have looked deeply into as it relates to giving. And this idea of um, the the joy that can come from altruism really being something that lasts, you know, that outlasts uh, a lot of other um, sort of basic, I guess, motivators that we feel as people sometimes mm -hmm. to go faster, earn more, you know, cr create more achievement uh, versus this idea of you know creating more more giving and and more altruism, and the the combination of those two things, um, that and and how they have created with GivingMultiplier.org uh, a way to give people the optionality of both satisfying emotional connection and having the biggest greatest outcome. I mean, it's just brilliant. It's so yeah. and and you know it's good because it is so simple right? You can describe yeah. it. Um, so that, that was what I took away. I mean, there's so much between all of you, between Rebecca had amazing insights on her experience too. And of course you always do. Uh, but I think that those two points from, from Dr. Green uh, really hit home for me. And it's so cool to see him light up when he's realizing that it's working. <laughs> I know like, that's so cool. You know, he's like, oh, it's working. It's alive, you know? Um, and, and that, you know, I mean, I think one of his quotes there was, you know, uh, it's like the science stuff works, right? Like that the data is, is pointing to a certain thing, but then to see those, that, that science applied and actually see how it's working in that people, uh, the effect it's having on people and their action. Um, yeah, I just think it's brilliant is such a, such a real honor and pleasure to have him on the podcast. And thanks Terry for attracting him, uh, in one way or another and getting him on, uh, yeah. I think everyone's going to enjoy it. Yeah, it was cool. And I, I will highlight again, this, this concept of personal best and, and, uh, really, I think this is the right audience and that, um, look, we, we can really double dip and we can go out and do the things that I know all of you out there are passionate about, uh, mountaineering, climbing, riding your bike, going on a, a exploration somewhere in a remote corner of the world. And although that might seem like a selfish enterprise, I think we've outlined that there, there's an avenue there doing good. And, uh, you know, we do these things because we want to live a purposeful and rememberable life. And I, I think the other value added is that in doing that, we have a way to also do good with what we see and hear while we're out there. And that adds more happiness to us. So um, 
it's a personal multiplier uh, as well. And so I, I hope people take some of that philosophy home with them. Um, but uh, let's uh, definitely give kudos uh, again to Dr. Josh Green and all of his work at giving multiplier. Uh, he mentioned he gave me some free PR for Adventure Activist during this. But uh, again, if you go to our website, uh, adventureactivist.org, we'll have a page built up by the time this uh, goes live that will link you directly to giving multiplier. As you heard from Dr. Green, they've uh, established an increased matching fund for people who access the site um, via our website, where again, you can look up any nonprofit organization as a 401c3 designation, decide to give to that, and then step through the process of using the multiplier to see how much additional money you can get from that organization. You can scroll through uh, their vetted philanthropies that have been reviewed by experts that are founded on evidence. He talked about, um, you know, uh, give directly, which works on deworming. He talked about uh, malaria work. There's a for those who are climate oriented, who I know many of us are in this audience. Uh, there's a connection to the Clean Air Task Force, which is doing some amazing work in policy uh, in regards to climate change. So uh, please go there. And uh, of course, you know, CJ and I are nearing the end of of, of this experiment. And uh, I hope it's been meaningful to any of you out there listening. I hope it's inspired you to do some of your own adventures or good work. Um, and if you'd like for any of this content to continue going forward, you know, certainly we appreciate any of your help. The Adventure Activist is a 501c3 nonprofit. You can access and donate to us as well uh, through the Giving Multiplier site. And we would love to continue programming like this. We would love to bring you more lessons like this. And ideally, I think together in partnership, man, it would be a dream to be able to uh, actually offer a scholarship or a fellowship to someone who wants to do work in this space on an adventure, giving back to a meaningful cause, whether it be animal stewardship, environmental protection, uh, you know, education in the third world and climate stewardship. Uh, that's really a vision we have going forward. So we appreciate your interest. We appreciate your support. If nothing else, if your personal best isn't giving us money, remember your personal best can just be giving us a good rating and telling your friend about the podcast, plant a seed of an idea in someone else. You know, we are all a collective of people that are, you know, we're positively minded. We do want to make a good difference in this world. And uh, if this has been helpful for you, uh, it might be helpful for somebody else too. So please share the word. And awesome to have you guys engaged in listening to what we have to share. Well said, Terry. Thanks for joining everybody. Go check out givingmultiplier.org and adventureactivist.org. And you can find us at romemedia.com, all of the socials uh, at Rome and so on. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.